0: everyone and welcome to the Hi-Hat Film Podcast, your purveyors of authentic frontier film gibberish. I'm your host, Michael Clancy, back with you to run through another Top 5 and I'm delighted to welcome back to the show uh, my partner in crime with the Top 5s, it's Mr. Dan Lovely. How are you doing, Dan?
1: I'm doing well, thank you, Michael.
0: Fresh from the internet stardom that I'm sure has fallen upon you since our last episode, how are you keeping up with the fame? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I am uh, I'm basking in it right now, it's sort of going through the, uh, just enjoying it stage before I get to the, uh, uh miserable, burnt-out Jim Morrison right before he dies face.
0: <laughs> oh, that's one to look forward to. Yes. Did, did you get those checks all right? I mean, the checks do mm. come pouring mm. in, and I've yeah. been careful yeah, to... Yeah, they are coming in well. Yeah. Good. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice, isn't it? It's good. It all, is, all those yeah. sponsorships. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, this is our, our second attempt at the, uh, the top fives. Our last episode, we ran down our top five distorted reality movies... And it was very well, very well received by our loyal high hatters and presumably the dozens and dozens of new listeners that we got as well. And even the tip of the hat from my uh, my former host, Nick Murray, who I was chatting to a couple of days ago. And he said he'd listened to the episode and he he thought it sounded fantastic and he had nothing but nice things to say about you, Dan. So high praise indeed coming from Nick, who generally doesn't like anyone or anything.
1: (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: And we've got another themed top five to discuss in a minute, and I I can't wait to get into it. I know you feel exactly the same way, and we'll we'll get into it before too long. But before we do, uh, have you been to the cinema recently?
1: Yeah, I went uh, about a couple weeks ago. Um, I uh, I think I've seen one movie lately, um, and that was Captain America Civil War.
0: Captain America's Civil War, aka yes. f- the fun version of Batman versus Superman. Yes,
1: I decided I did need to see superheroes beat up each other, but I didn't want to <laughs> see the DC version. I wonder if there's
0: anybody holding off for the third this superheroes beating each other up at the end of the month uh, X-Men. I wonder if anyone's deciding that's the one they're going to get excited about, but um
1: Well, I I do like I I mean, now that you mentioned that I, I am excited. I think the X-Men universe is Really weird, and I never, I, I never can quite see where it's going to go. So I do mm. appreciate that. Uh, I original. I do as
0: well, and like I'm 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 quite a big fan. I was quite a big fan of Days of Future's Past, and I was pleasantly mm. surprised by the first class. But from the the word of mouth that I've heard so far on X Men, it's it's the the new one, X Men Apocalypse. It's 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 not great, but but time will tell. You never know. <laughs> yeah. But um uh, Captain America. Civil War. What did you What did you make of it?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it was, um, it, it really felt like a middle movie. Um, there's a lot of setup for, for future things for you know the Avengers three and uh, you know I feel like there's it's, it's one that I kind of felt like I was I I had to see the uh, many of the previous Marvel films to enjoy it. But it, that being said, it was uh, fun. I did enjoy. Um, there's one particular good scene in, um, in the airport where a lot of the. Uh, basically the. <laughs> everyone beats each other up scene, which. that was well done. Um, however, I just feel like sometimes a movie can be uh, overly heavy with. Uh, with competing main characters. Um, mm. um, while I had a good time, I think I would have to say. It's one that just makes me want to see a more, uh, a a story that's more complete. I I didn't really feel like they had a a strong grip on a villain. um, And uh, without spoiling the film, I feel like it was one that had it been parts of this film put into one more concise movie. Uh, Although, then again, this is me arguing against Marvel's uh, universe franchise. So. Uh, not the, I don't think they're going to go this, in that direction, but uh, it, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. It was my like very conflicted review.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting you say, you know, there's no no sense of, like, almost finality with any of these films. It always feels like every film is laying the groundwork for the next step. It's always got one eye on, it's interesting. on the you next know, it's step.
1: More, yeah, it's taking more of, um, of a television approach to it, which is that, you know, you have, hopefully, seasons that never end. But mm. in order to tell a true story, you do need an ending. So I feel like that—that that is a problem uh, you know, that we're kind of running into.
0: Yeah, you just wonder when is when is it going to be enough? When are they going to draw a line under it and say, "Well, that was it"? I mean, I suppose never. I mean, they've got these franchises and yeah. they're 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 making a lot of money. They're, they're so they're going to keep doing it. I suppose as long as they keep making a profit on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why uh, original films that that are. Uh, maybe a little more conceptual standout, I think. Uh, and you, you see those nominated more at, at, for, for the awards, but you do need those big, fun blockbusters, too, in the summer. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, well, I, I guess you weren't too down on that that superhero film. I guess you weren't too anti-hero in your, your approach <laughs> to Captain America Civil War, and with that... Shameful and glaring segue. We can I think we can move on to our, our top five for the week. Top five, top five, top five, top five. Top five. It's an exciting one. We're talking anti-heroes. It's our top five films that feature anti-heroes, anti-hero movies. Uh this is this was a much meatier topic than I even realized when I when I suggested
1: it. Did you did you feel that way as well? I did. And um, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I was Uh, being true to the the genre so I I think one of the things that I had to decide early on was what I how I define an anti-hero and what that means and uh, just for those out there who uh, may not be quite so sure at least the definition that I came to um, was uh, someone who does the right thing but maybe for the wrong reasons someone who is generally a hero but maybe has some uh, moral gray areas or uh, sometimes is a bad person who turns into a good person.
2: Hmm.
1: I like that. I mean, I also did my own kind of
0: research into what an antihero was and I found a bunch of different and sometimes conflicting definitions of it. We had... You know, a protagonist who lacks conventional heroic qualities such as idealism or courage or morality. Mm-hmm. Someone maybe with dark personality traits. Someone who's, like, disagreeable, dishonest, or aggressive. Someone who's imperfect, has a lack of positive qualities, ambiguous motives, but has this hint that they could do something noble. I, I kind of looked at all of the... I found all of these different definitions, and I, I tried to put together a list that maybe isn't completely completely dead set on my 1 to 5 of favorite films with antiheroes but i think what i've tried to put together is a list that reflects all of these different kinds of 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 heroes cuz or antiheroes cuz you know you look at a hero can mean something different to different people and i think the same can be said with antiheroes so uh, my list kind is kind of done to reflect
2: that
1: i think that makes sense i you know i feel like uh, archetypes are very specific to each person so as long as you're not you know say wildly reaching for, (laughs) grasping at straws for for, uh, reasons, uh, for one of them. I think, uh, you know, it's well within within reason. Well,
0: you say that now, you might feel different (laughs) when you hear some of the films on my list, but hopefully Uh, I've not ventured too far from the chosen path. With that being said, you know, I did the honours on our last show, and I'm happy to switch that up. Why don't don't you take us away with your number five in the Anti-Heroes
1: Top Five? Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, and to that, I will say uh, my number five was one that I, I came to rather quickly, and I knew this was going to be my number five because of how much I love this movie, but because of how uh, – maybe the, well, I'll just – I'll get right to it. It is The Crow, 1994, de- uh, directed by Alex Proyas, starring uh-huh. Brandon Lee and Ernie Hudson. Is Ernie Hudson in it? He is. Yes. Oh, I love a bit
0: of Ernie Hudson. Uh, I've mm. just been watching a bit of Grace and Frankie with Ernie Hudson. I didn't I haven't seen The Crownate in Forever. I, I didn't realize he was in it.
1: You know, it's um it's uh, a movie that is very very 90s. Um, and it's one that uh you know, it it just it was one that I had seen bits and pieces of growing up and I think it was one my parents probably didn't want me to watch because of how, how violent <laughs> yeah. it was, you know, really Really is, but um, uh, it's a it's a really uh, uh, you know well made movie. Maybe not as good quality of film as some of the others on my list. Uh, you know, it is an action adventure, uh, new noir, uh, essentially superhero movie. But um, I I feel like uh, the main character really uh, justifies what an antihero, uh, what an antihero is. So, one year after the brutal murder of Eric Draven and his fiancée Shelley Webster, um, uh, Eric's soul comes back for revenge in the form of an ominous crow which resurrects his body. So this is essentially already a zombie movie, you got that going for it. Um, (laughs) Now, uh, Eric gains multiple superpowers, including increased strength, uh, parkour-esque ability, and agility, and uh, while he does seem to feel pain, he's sort of has these Wolverine-like regenerative powers, and um, the ability to see through his crow's eyes. <laughs> it's a form of uh, Game of Thrones warging. Um, he has the magic ability to drain morphine from someone's arm. He can see the past by touching you, and also has the ability to sling Spider-Man-worthy witticisms as he hunts his killers down one by one.
2: <laughs>
1: Definitely a force for good, um, but you've very, uh, very much is a chaotic good. Um, I mean, obviously he's justifiably pissed at his killers, so he doesn't really have uh, much of a dilemma in terms of the morality of killing. Um. This is someone who basically over the course of two nights stabs, shoots, syringes, and explodes his way across Detroit, waging a <laughs> war, essentially, until he finds the, uh, his, his main main bad guy he needs to take down.
0: Is it fair to say that there's maybe a touch of the Matrix? Uh, that this went on to maybe Absolutely. influence
1: the Matrix a little bit. Absolutely, you can you can totally see touches of uh, of Eric Draven in Neo. I think he's someone who is just uh, kind of an outsider, a loner with a, with a heart of gold, um, and a significant level, level of badassery. And uh, I think both of those characters uh, unexpectedly are thrust into a, a situation in which they are forced to become saviors of of their
0: surroundings. I think it's, it's always quite difficult because, you know, is it, essentially his superpowers from what I remember is he is basically unstoppable. He is like, sort of immortal, very, very difficult to kill. And so it's,
1: You've got to take out the crow to take him out. So it's that's kind of right. Of the...
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one to 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 maybe buy into a character like that. Or at least I find it difficult. But from what I remember, I mean, it, it's been a long time since I've seen the film. But I mm-hmm. I really bought into it. I I really loved the character. I really loved the the look of it. Uh, and I re- I, re- I really dug the action in that movie. I thought it was really well done.
1: Yeah, certainly a little over the top. I mean, you do have uh, a sword fight on the top of a roof in the rain, <laughs> where one man is actually not wielding a sword, but a a, a spire of uh, like a like a I don't know if it's an antenna or like just a piece of metalry that he's fighting mm. another man with a sword. So it does have a little bit of theatricality to it, but <laughs> it kind of knows it. It leans into what it's doing. It, it knows it's it knows what it is.
0: Absolutely. Nah, no, that's a good one. That's a good call. I need to go back and watch that movie again, man. It's been a while.
1: Can't run all the time.
0: <laughs> Alright, well, I'm going to go with my number five. I'm going to jump in, and I'm sticking to the year of 1994, uh, a movie by director Luc Besson, and probably what is his his best work, in my opinion, anyway, Uh, For you, Dan, as as an American, you'll probably know this film as The Professional. For me, it will always be known as Leon, as named after the titular anti-hero played by Jean Reno. And so fantastically backed up as well by Natalie Portman in a supporting role and Gary Oldman, who is the, the traditional big bad guy of the film. So we have Leon, who is who's kind of your your cliched Hollywood stereotype hired assassin, you know, he's cold, he's calculating, he's a loner. He is the the perfect foil to be this kind of silent assassin for hire basically. And he he is a bad guy. He kills people for cash. That's that's his MO. So he is he's he's not a hero on the traditional sense uh, at all, certainly. And yet what Luc Besson does early on in the film, I think after we've seen him commit a couple of grisly, grisly murders that he's, he's been paid to take out with his uh, certain set of skills, and he is very, very skilled indeed. Um, he kind of hints at this softer side. I think he goes home and he watches old movies, or we see him in a movie theater, uh, and I believe, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I believe he's watching Singing in the Rain, and he's a bit of a fan of Gene, Gene Kelly dancing there in the rain. Uh, and this side gets fully realized when he takes, takes in a young girl, he takes a young girl under his wing, Natalie Portman, You know, a very, very early performance for her, a child actress who has gone on to great success as an adult. Uh, Natalie Portman, who's, uh, who was recently orphaned when her parents are murdered by Gary Oldman. I believe Oldman is a, a corrupt cop in in this film. And it's just very well done. You kind of have this character who does a lot of very nasty things. You know, he kills for cash, asks no questions, takes out people. And he does it with such ruthless proficiency. And then you just kind of... See him slowly but surely showing this softer side for this for this young girl. They, they form an an attachment. Uh, and it 's and it 's partly due to the absolutely fantastic work of Natalie Portman, who is just so irresistibly charming that you see the cracks in his his silent machismo his uh, and you see those cracks but it 's also and and she 's the one that gets spoken about probably most when you when you talk about sure. this film just what a wonderful performance it is from someone so young and that is certainly very true but um jean Jean Renault is just terrific in this as well he is you see him in a lot of things, and he and he and he often plays the kind of the kind of straight faced guy. He, he he does like to play it straight faced, but it just every now and again, you just see these little flourishes, these little cracks, and whether it's just a little smile or whether and he has a very he has this very goofy smile sometimes, uh, or just like he'll you know maybe it's just a very dry one line, but he he kind of lets you in, and so you know within that time he goes from. Somebody who, in any other film, would be the bad guy. You know, the guy maybe sent out to take out James Bond or Jason Bourne or something. You know, the, the big bad guy for that. But we we see this soft side of him. Uh, we see We see his apartment. We see this relationship he builds with this little girl who doesn't have anybody else in the world. And then you start... So he goes from someone who's very has very very questionable morals and very very questionable motives seems to be motivated by money and and this and this uh desire to be alone and and to well he's on a journey basically to embrace more heroic qualities and uh, uh, without giving too much away you know starts to embrace these one of the biggest heroic qualities out of self sacrifice it's um it's it's quite a film i'm i'm
1: i'm a big fan of it you know, it's not one I've seen, but I, I've definitely heard a lot about it. It's always been one that I've uh, meant to see on the list, uh, and you know, it's great to hear. It's it's great, <laughs> you know. It's great. It's really good. I mean, I don't think Luke
0: Besson has come close. You know, here we are, over twenty years later, to doing anything as uh, substantial as that. You know, we've seen him do big dumb action, and there, you know, they're certainly the fingerprints of leon in a lot of his works from from going going forward in terms of action and in terms of 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 goofiness at times but there's there's nothing that quite touches this this is this is really quite something
1: yeah it's one that he did um kind of close to i think you know i know he's he's done a, a variety of films and they weren't you know they certainly they don't all have the same theme but um uh, another favorite of mine that he's done, the Fifth Element, and I wonder, you know, just how you know how goofy and uh, over the top that that film is, um, mm. you know, just comparatively. Uh, it's nice to see a director with range. Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll give you that. The, the, this and the Fifth Element are probably is, is is two best works. I'm a big big fan of uh, the Fifth Element as well. Mm. So you caught me out there, Dan. Fair enough, but uh, <laughs> I still think it's a a really good. Almost a tale of redemption. Almost a tale of redemption. Mm-hmm. And it's worth saying Gary Oldman is absolutely fantastic as well. But uh, yeah, so a lot, to, a lot to recommend in that, Dan. And I, I, I highly, highly suggest that you do catch that one.
2: It's when you start to become really afraid of death that you learn to appreciate life. Do you like life, sweetheart? Yes. hmm That's good. Because I take no pleasure in taking a life if it's from a person who doesn't
1: care about it. All right, all right now, going on to my number four. Uh, so this is... Um, Speaking of singing in the rain, a uh, this is a 1971 film directed by Stanley Kubrick in which singing in the rain is sung in a rather horrifying scene. So this is of course the classic a Clockwork Orange, Oh starring boy. Malcolm McDowell. And now this one I had a I had a hard time. I wasn't sure if this if uh, if uh, Alex, who's the main character, qualifies as a as an antihero. If he's just a straight out villain. But uh, watching it again, you know, it's one that um, it's it's maybe one of the the ultimate man versus society films, or the, uh, the ultimate of films. I think it's one that forces the viewer to decide how they feel that, about its main character. Um, so now that Alex is living in the is a, uh, his, uh, I guess it's based on the based on the novel where he's about uh, I think 15 or so. They have him a little older, maybe like 18 or 19 in the film. And he's living in this essentially dystopian London, um, almost as if uh, Russia had taken over or if Germany won World War II. This sort of a uh, uh, seemingly uh, very unfortunate and sad version of London. Um, and it's a very sexually repressed society. and His parents don't understand him. All of the adults in the film pretty much either uh, neglect or use young people. And there is a lot of unrest and violence. And um, Alex comes to the... Uh, comes to the, to, to, into the film um, already kind of on top of this violent society. You know, He's someone who has resorted to acting out sadistically, unfortunately, but that seems to be his only form of expression. Um, he sees the world has gone to shambles and uh, basically uh, the film shows a, a taste of this world and then well, during one of the his uh, house calls that Alex makes with his droves to a uh, to one particular house he winds up accidentally murdering someone getting caught Um, someone who's, he essentially is uh, kind of brainwashed in this um, sort of uh, I think think they call it the Ludovico technique Um, essentially uh, increasing someone's nausea when um, anything violent or sexual uh, appears in front of them or if they have any sort of violent urges, um, he instantly feels the need to throw up, which is pretty aw- pretty awful. Um, yeah, it's it's not great. <laughs> no. Uh, however, throughout the film, um, one of the, the light parts of Alex, one of the, the reasons why he, I think, uh, could be an anti-hero, is his love for Beethoven. And um, just for music in general, but specifically Beethoven, he seems to have a, uh, a true understanding into... Um, into the the passion of the music and um, while this does at first come out in a violent expression of his um, he seems to to truly understand and uh, have the soul of an artist but stuck in uh, the body of someone who becomes a pawn in a political game Um, you know left to try and escape the horror in his mind which is really the only place he's uh, in control of anymore so, it's a very sad and kind of jarring and disturbing film. Um, so, it's a Stanley Kubrick film, essentially. But, uh, you know, it's one that uh, it was a hard time watching it the first time. And the second time, kind of really good. You, you can kind of see uh, more of why the character is doing what it, what, what he's doing. Um, so, I think uh, Alex is someone that I, I would nominate for uh, anti hero level of. Uh,
0: <laughs> Yeah, probably one of the darkest of the anti-heroes, certainly. but I I think it's fitting. I mean, it and uh I like your first film. It's been quite a while since since I've seen that, so I I don't remember it quite as well as uh, as, as, as I would like for the conversation, but it's 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 well overdue a rewatch for me. But uh yeah, certainly I don't remember too many re- uh, redeeming qualities from Eric as, uh, from Alex as a character, but certainly, you know, very bold to make somebody that that messed up your your protagonist and effectively in every scene of the film. I mean, very bold hmm. choice, and I suppose you know, maybe we should expect nothing less from Stanley Kubrick. Absolutely, very good indeed. Well, I am I am changing, I am changing directions very much uh, with my number four pick, and I dare say this is a film that you might not have heard of, Dan, because it got a fairly limited release in the UK back in two thousand and eleven. It is the debut feature film from a very fine actor, uh, Paddy Considine, who who you may or may not have heard of. He was in uh, the last Jason Bourne film with with Matt Damon, uh, but he's he, this was his hand at, at directing, and this is a film called Tyrannosaur. And what fascinated me about this film, Dan, is I I, I think I think very much the main character in it is is an anti-hero, but certainly not not in your Deadpool, Batman, spandex kind of way um, at all. But I think just in, and I, I talked a little bit about the journey that, that Jean Reno's character go, went on in Leon, but certainly the journey he goes on within his time in this film uh, really, for me, makes him a, a fascinating, fascinating uh, character. It's a fascinating character study, and I think as a, a protagonist... This character of joseph, who 's played by Peter Mullen, who's one of my absolute favorite actors, a really, really great Scottish character actor called Peter Mullen. Uh, the journey that he goes on in this it 's a fascinating character study, but I think it, i 'm going to talk you through it and I, and, I, and I hope you'll agree with me that he kind of fits into the anti anti hero category because he is uh. he is someone who lacks no heroic qualities he is not a hero at all he doesn 't live in some outlandish situation or some fantasy world. He doesn't live... He lives in probably the most unglamorous place ever. He lives in a very low-income area of uh, England. I believe... I think it's Leeds, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure on that. And he plays... This guy, Joseph, he's a, a lonely, ageing man who, who lives on his own. Uh, he doesn't have any friends. His wife recently passed away. He doesn't have any kids or certainly none that are, that are referenced in this film. And he, he's just a man who is just completely and utterly consumed by rage. And, mm-hmm. and it's hinted at that it's this, this kind of addiction to rage that has left him isolated and lonely. Um, and 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 the film really looks at how he manages to find a glimmer of solace in a relationship with uh with a woman who works in the local charity shop, a woman called Hannah, who's played absolutely magnificently by a, a, another very fine British actress called Olivia Coleman. So, this is as I mentioned, Peter Mullen one of my favourite character actors. And if you've seen him, I, I, he, have you seen Train Spotting? Dan, I have, yeah. He has a small role in that. He plays he plays the drug dealer that drags Renton into the taxi in that film, um, and he pops up in a lot of things. He's in things like Braveheart and uh, and things like that. Basically, whenever you whenever you need a gruff looking middle aged Scottish guy, he is he is your go to guy. He's he's perfect for that. And this, so having seen him like in a lot of very small roles uh, growing up, this is a, a film that this is a vehicle to really showcase his range. Um, mm-hmm. Joseph is not a good man at all and it's a film that that lays that down very heavily in the first ten minutes in the first ten minutes of the film you see him uh have have an, a, a, an angry outburst where he he kicks his his pet dog to death. You see him uh making racial slurs towards the local i believe Pakistani family in his local post office. you see him commit acts of vandalism uh, you see him uh, commit assault on a young man in a bar as well and this is in the first ten minutes. So he's not a likable character. The film goes out of your way to say this is not a good guy. This is not a. This is not a hero. This is not a guy that you can you can uh, really make too many connections with. But what's interesting is with all of these things, you, there are moments. There are just little flickers where you where you where he shows remorse, or he shows some regret to it all. It's and 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 it's just hinted at that. That it's this problem with rage that he has. I mean, he, he, he kicks his dog to death in a, in a moment of misplaced rage, and he immediately regrets it, and he spends the rest of the time mourning the loss of his dog. After the, the racial slurs, he apologizes to the family because he, he's worried that he's going to be withheld his money. Uh, the vandalism is kind of an outburst as well. The assault is just... You see him in the pub and you see him just trying to repress this rage in him and he just can't handle it anymore. And, the, and he lashes out. So you kind of see all of these sides of it. He's not just a one-dimensional psychopath. He is essentially a victim of his own a- anger. And... And and through his interactions with this charity shop worker Hannah, you kind of get this glimpse of potential redemption for her. Um, you know, she's a very religious woman. She comes from a very she has a uh, a husband who is very well off. So she's she is a woman of means and and. She, she is, a, you know, she works in a charity shop, so by her nature, she's very charitable. So she is trying to basically help him, and what it basically turns into is their interactions basically turn into counselling sessions. Um, particularly for him, the first time they meet, he goes into her charity shop to take refuge after he's committed a committed an assault on a young man in a pub, and he's he's basically hiding behind the clothes so he doesn't get caught. And he's and and Hannah just goes over and she she prays for him. She she prays for him, and you sort of you sort of see him, and he at first he's like, get away! I don't want anything to do with you. But then. But then you just sort of see the reaction on his face as she prays for him, and he hears these kind words. He just he doesn't know how to react. He doesn't he doesn't know what's happening. He's not used to this kind of reaction. So it's it's very very interesting. It's a very kind of subtle hint at redemption for this guy. And so it's it's a movie about repression. It's about bottling things up. It's a very British film in that respect. It's about you know just. Keeping things inside you so much that they just kind of explode in a way, and that's something that's that's seen in Joseph absolutely from the beginning. But it's also something that is later reflected in the in the character of Hannah as well. And again, I don't want to give away too much, but she is uh, battling her own demons, shall we say? And to, and and to and to top it all off, it kind of. If I was to make a comparison, although it's not really close at all, there are kind of echoes of uh, Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino, where you have this kind of embittered old man who slowly but surely makes his way back. And and it, and it's tough. It's a tough watch. I mean, it's a film where a dog gets kicked to death in the first five minutes. Yeah. It's not an easy watch. but And, and the ending as well is... Uh, and again, I'm not going to spoil it. The ending he makes i'm going to say he makes a gesture um and he does what he think thinks was right and yet it is and in his own way it it's kind of a, an act of redemption but at the same time it's something that would disgust most people you know most normal people so it's I'm doing a really bad job of describing it, Dan, but because I, I don't want to give away the, the end, because I am hoping that people will go and watch this, because it is it's kind of this uh, the, the, uh, this this gem of a film. So it's it's I, the more I talk about it, I know I'm doing a horrible job of describing this guy as an antihero because he's he starts as a bastard and he ends up doing something which is uh, also not very good, but it's just this kind of journey along the way where he he kind of crawls his way out of it and it's and it's basically about his own kind of redemption so I don't know I, you might have to go and watch the film and you tell me if he is an antihero or not because yeah, I know I've done it's... an absolutely terrible <laughs> job of describing it uh, unfortunately but, uh,
1: I, you know I haven't I hadn't heard of it until now that you know um, I think that's you know it's a shame but there are so many films it's wonderful that there are so many films that you know I can still discover something that came out five years ago that I hadn't heard of and in terms of what kind of anti-hero he is, I think, I think he would definitely, it sounds like he definitely qualifies. I think a lot of times, characters are, are defined by the people around them, and, defined by those who, take an interest in them, and, surprise them. And so, I think, uh, Joseph definitely sounds like, a, a strong contender. And, uh, <laughs> I think, if I'm, if I'm able to pitch Alex, from Parker Orange, you know, I think, <laughs> it, you're, it sounds like you're, you're, well within, within reason to, to pitch Joseph.
0: Yeah, I- I mean, I'm just looking back over my notes to why I thought it was a good idea in the first place, and like he—he's our protagonist. He is our way into the movie. He doesn't have any heroic qualities. Um, he is has very dark personality traits, as I said, but he tries. He makes an effort. He the distance that he goes on on his journey, and I'm talking about journeys like I'm Nick Murray, but. Um, the journey he makes is only like maybe a quarter of an inch to the right but for him it's a massive effort on his behalf and I think the, it's a heroic effort hmm. let's just leave it at that it's a heroic effort I landed on that very clumsily uh, but he makes a heroic effort to at least do something that he thinks is, is right and I'll and I'll leave it there I'll leave <laughs> it there before I, I tie myself up in more knots
1: certainly one I want to check out you know it's um, you know, you said to sad to see that it's always great to hear something never heard of and I'm excited to see good well I hope you check it out (laughs) well going on my number three pick so this is also a 2011 film um this is one that um had a lot of uh, press I think that year and um it's the neo-noir maybe western drive directed by uh, Nicholas Winding Refn I'm not sure if I'm saying that right maybe it's Winding Refn but Regardless, um, this is a really great film, um, starring Ryan Gosling, Carey Mulligan, um, Oscar Isaac, Brian Cranston, Ron Perlman, Christina Hendricks, Albert Brooks, just a, a really well-cast film. Uh, it's one that I, I came to, you know, it was one that uh, I feel like there was a significant outrage that there, it's, there's not that much driving in this film. I think it was one that was kind of marketed as a sort of, uh, action, you know, heist, shoot 'em up, but it's really a, a darker look into, you know, maybe a seedier side of uh, Los Angeles. It's got a, a loose, loose Western feel to it. Um, if you've ever seen the, the film Shane, this kind of has a very similar plot. Um, where a man with a violent past meets a woman who he falls in love with and vows to protect. I'm not going to tell you the ending, but there's a there are some similarities as well. So the, the main character is Nameless, um, just referred to as uh, a driver, works his days as a stunt driver and his nights as a getaway driver, and played by Ryan Dawson, very, very silent, um, very few lines. This is definitely a movie that focuses more on um, visual, and when you hear someone say a line, it, it has that much more weight to it. So after meeting his neighbor, Terry uh, Mulligan's character, Irene, and her son, Benicio, um, he tries to change his criminal ways, but he's quickly forced to protect her, and in doing so, is kind of uh, made to embrace his darker side. Um, Oscar Isaac, who gets mixed up in the L.A. Mafia, which is just wonderfully run by Ron Perlman and Albert Brooks, um, uh, he uh, kind of falls into a bit of trouble, and the driver takes it upon himself to, uh, to straighten things out for them very very exposed dialogue the, the visuals and, and, and the score uh, which is kind of this cool 80s sort of synth pop kind of retro but sort of futurey score that was uh, written for the film actually um really dictates the mood yeah, it really dictates the mood of, of each moment
0: it's fantastic it's it's really really good the, the soundtrack i love it
1: yeah it, you know it's one of the I, I don't buy a lot of soundtracks from films but it's one that after seeing i you know i realized that i need to have this, it, it really creates an atmosphere, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's just a, well done. The visuals in this film are, are so striking, um, often the driver will be silhouetted in a shadow or, or in light depending on the scene, depending on what he's doing, um, you know, in a scene where uh, he kills someone for instance, only the shadow is seen you know, doing that until it's, it's done. Uh, so I think the, the, the driver is a really strong candidate as Antihara, um, he's mostly a good guy, um, there are a few moments um, where he turns extremely violent. I, I don't think I could mention this film and not um, not bring up just the, possibly the, the best scene in the whole movie, which is, takes place in an elevator. Um, <laughs> yep, I know the one you mean. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, I, I don't think you can see this film and not remember that that moment. It's just it's really the heart of the film. And if you only watch this one scene, and you shouldn't, you should watch the whole movie. But if you only could watch one scene from this film, and find out what it's about, it's this elevator scene, so I really don't want to give it away what happens, but um, it's just a perfect encapsulation of beauty and horror, Um, you know, uh, the the main character just without a single line delivered in in this scene, um, it's just one of the the most striking and sad and just awesome scenes that I've seen in in films uh, in, in a long time
0: yeah and like i I really admire the film because it is you know on the surface it could just be a very popcorn friendly mm. a to b with a with a, a a gorgeous leading man who kind of who saves who saves the heroine and rides off into the sunset but that's that's not what this film is. Uh, I think that's what it was marketed as but that isn't what it yeah. is at all and I think uh, Nicholas Winding Refn deser- deserves a lot of credit for that and uh, it's one of the reasons why I admire Ryan Gosling as an actor I mean he doesn't it, he has never once traded on his looks to kind of go the easy route in yeah. his career you yeah. know he could have yeah. he could have done the Matthew McConaughey path for many a year he could have been in romantic comedies on posters leaning against the the, the the leading woman in the film he could have coasted on that for ten years but he, he consistently makes makes uh, smart choices he makes interesting films cerebral films films that you wouldn't expect from from a you know a pretty boy Hollywood actor and this and yeah. and, and this is a, a really good example of that
1: I, I agree you know it's it's interesting um, he almost didn't star in this film at all originally the uh, the driver was played by Hugh Jackman. Um, and oh, the film wow. was also oh. originally going to be directed by uh, Neil Marshall, who's um, more than m- maybe more recently known for directing a couple Game of Thrones episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, However, uh, they replaced Hugh Jackman with Ryan Gosling and then gave him his choice of director, which, uh, <laughs> if anything else, that's when you know you've made it. But um, I-, I think he made a really great choice. You know, I- I've, I've uh, seen a couple of interviews, and it seems like... You know, the director and, and the actor, uh, they really made a, a, a powerful duo. You know, they wanted to make basically a violent John Hughes movie. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think they did a great job. I think they just about got there. Well, yeah, i say so. <laughs> and,
0: and if you're going to put a film with Carey Mulligan, uh, Brian Cranston, and Albert Brooks, then, yeah, you, you have my money. Mm-hmm. You have my money. I mean, I'll go and see any movie with those
2: three. He's a good guy. You know, he walked into my shop here about five or six years ago, uh, right out of the blue, asking for a job. So I put him to the test, see what he can do. Kid's amazing. Yeah. So I hire him on the spot. Boom. At about half the wages I normally pay, <laughs> hey, he didn't blink an eye. Hey, kid, come over here for a segway. And I have been exploiting him ever since. <laughs> Shh, don't tell him. Look, it looks like we have a bigger problem than I thought. We're going to have to keep the car here for a few days. So I offered your services to take Benicio and Irene home. Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't have wheels for my car. (laughs) Okay. That's one thing you should know about me. We'll put the tires on. You got five minutes? Yeah.
0: All right, that's that's a really good pick. And uh, spoiler alert: Drive was Drive isn't on my list, but it was certainly on my short list. It was one of my very nearlies, so uh, I, I love it as well. It's a fantastic pick, and I'm I'm glad you picked it. So we had a chance to to talk about it. Allow me to take you back to 1992 for my number three, and I'm gonna take you. Well, I'm taking you in 1992 for the film, but actually we're going back to the year 1880 to Big Whiskey Wyoming for. Clint Eastwood's Oscar-winning western *Unforgiven*, mm.
1: uh,
0: which you, you know, as you know, Clint, stars Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, uh, Richard Harris. Also, you know, very, a very a very big cast for for this story about a, a film which is essentially looks at it's it's this idea of of heroes versus legends or or. or or hero, being a hero versus being a legend. And so, hey, it's it's actually revisiting it. I was looking at it, I was going to go into it from uh, the point of view of Clint Eastwood's character, but this is really a tale of, of two antiheroes, uh, two Bills. Uh, Clint Eastwood's Bill Money, who is uh, probably our protagonist, but also Little Bill Daggett, played magnificently by Gene Hackman. Uh, Money plays a retired gunslinger who who had a very violent past but was uh, rescued by a good woman who he then married, had two kids with, and kind of hung up his, his gun belt and, and tried to live off a of life on a farm. And he's basically brought out of retirement. Whereas then you have uh, the, the the little Bill Daggett character played by Gene Hackman who's who's the law of this small town who is trying to minimize bloodshed when one of the, one of the ladies of the night, shall we say, in this small town is it has her face severely scarred by an unhappy customer. So then, the the rest of her her workers her colleagues in the little whorehouse, kind of band together and put a bounty on this guy's head, and uh, that kind of attracts all of these unsavory characters from across the land to uh, to kind of uh, claim some sort of idea of maybe ill ill-begotten revenge. So. It's kind of the contrast between these two characters. I mean, the character of uh, Bill Money it certainly isn't a good person, or, or, or certainly we're given an idea of his bad past. Eastwood carries, carries the, the burden of regret and guilt very, very well at the best of times. I mean, his face has so much character, but um, very much so in this film. I mean, it's a film that opens with, with the kind of the scroll text to give you a bit of context and it opens with she was a comely young woman and not without prospects therefore it was heartbreaking to her mother that she would enter into marriage with William Money a known thief and murderer a man of notoriously vicious and in temperament disposition so that's, that's the character that we are described that is not the character that we see really at all in the film until really it's bloody climax and uh, I, I won't well, we, w- we won't go too far into that, but certainly I thought this was a really good one to look at because it looks at, again, this idea of heroes versus legends. And, it's and you know, y- you kind of have this 15-minute, 20-minute detour in the film where it-, it leaves all of your main established characters and it introduces this character, English Bob, played by Richard Harris, who is kind of set up as this legendary gunslinger riding into town to to claim the bounty and and, and uh, honor these honor these women that have, have been wronged and he basically spends 20 minutes talking about oh how the monarchy are great and how you could never shoot a king or a queen but a president why not shoot him I believe is his, uh, is his description of it. So he rides into town, and then he is uh, very quickly dispatched. For all his talk, he is very, very quickly dispatched in a very public setting by Gene Hackman's character. So it kind of gives you this idea of... Legends are all very well and good, but they don't get you very far when when you've got a a couple of guns pointed at you. Mm. So... It's. It, I, I find that very, very interesting. You also have the the legend of this Bill Money character. He is described as, as a man of notoriously vicious and temperament disposition, and yet he's our way into the story. He is our hero, and and you can kind of see it. You're like, oh well, he couldn't possibly be as bad as they say. He's just this sweet old man, you know. He's he's a reluctant hero. He's not really. But then you see that dark side come out of him at the end, and and it's and it's kind of a reverse. A, a reverse um, treatment for Gene Hackman's character I mean in any other western Gene Hackman's character would have been the hero of the piece you know he is the outlaw he is defending the town from these incoming invaders you know he's Gary Cooper in High Noon I mean how, he's he's every hero in every western and yet he is the villain And 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 you know you sort of see you see that viciousness in the way that he handles Richard Harris, and then you later see that viciousness again in his treatment of uh, Morgan Freeman's character. So, you know, this idea of, of villains becoming heroes and heroes becoming villains, you know, take your pick. I'm not really sure who I'm talking about in terms of anti-heroes. <laughs> There's anti-heroes all over the place on this one, but uh, it's, it just shows the multifaceted plot. It's a, it's a film of many many a moral quandary, which I think is very fitting when you're, when you're talking about a murky topic like anti-heroes
1: certainly yeah I mean you know
0: it, it, it's a it's a film that just kind of shows that you know one man's hero is another man's villain
1: yeah it's definitely um one of the better westerns I've seen um uh, and you know I don't know if I you know there you know some there are resurgences of, of western films every now and then but you know because it, it's it is a pretty sprawling uh sprawling genre there are so many western films and definitely one that that stands up with the greats uh, easily I think Clint Eastwood hands down is just well, he's really uh, the master of the western. But um, always great to see Gene Hackman, who um, you know I grew up loving, having seen him in, in you know Superman, and just right. uh, just a really wonderful range and, and such uh, great comedic chops as well. Uh, yeah, I
0: mean, I mean, he you see him at the beginning of the film, he is building a building a house, and anyone that's seen a you know a a film based on any Nicholas Sparks novels knows that if you're building a house you must be a good guy you must be a good guy but uh, yeah th- th- this turns it on its head I don't deserve this
2: to die like this I was building a house deserves got nothing to do with it I'll see you in hell with money
1: Yeah. Um, you seem to have a bit of a Clint Eastwood thing going. I know you mentioned um, Gran Torino and uh, Now With Unforgiven, going directly into my next film pick, which. I think is perhaps the best western of all time, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, 1966, is, directed right by the master of revenge and grit, Sergio Leone, um, uh, against Anthony. We just have
0: to pause there, Dan, because uh, you know, as you know, I like to drop in the soundtracks, and you know oh, I'm going to be dropping in. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be dropping in Ennio Morricone's <laughs> uh, infamous thing there. So uh, let's just let's pretend like we're listening to it
1: now. Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Continue. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the most uh, well-made films in film history. It's uh, an Italian film, actually, that was... Uh, originally, it's titled Buona Brutto Cativa. And, you know, Sergio, Le- Sergio Leone is someone who does not need a lot of uh, introduction. He's someone who's been very iconic and influential in terms of filmmaking and certainly working with uh, Ennio Morricone and uh, just a master of, of uh, make, really making music for films um, that completely supports and um, defines uh, what's happening on the screen. Um, so this is uh, this is the third in the trilogy of The Man With No Name, uh, who is Queen uh, Good, uh, following after a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more. And I'd say this is probably one of Clint Eastwood's more well-known films. Um, so it's a spaghetti western, and it was shot in Italian and dubbed over in English. So, you know, it's, I think the next time I see it, I, 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 I did watch it in English this time. Um, I might like to see the Italian version next time to see if... Uh, you know, it may be a little harder to find, but it's always good to see a film in its original form. It is a long movie, for sure. Uh, it's, I think about three hours. Something ahead. like that, yeah. Yeah, certainly. it really takes its time, but it it's definitely one you want to sit through, and it's something that it's it's the kind of movie that tells such a great story. Um, it's a very anti-war film. Um, you know, it's it's one that it takes place in. Uh, let me just look it up. It, it takes place, I believe, in I think like 1863. Um, it's not really given a time, but it is during the the Civil War. Um, and there are, uh, you know, Union Confederate troops pretty much bombing the hell out of all the towns in, in the area. It features the three characters, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, the, the good, uh, Clint Eastwood, also known as Blondie, or the, the angel with golden hair, um, <laughs> uh, he works as a mercenary, essentially um, pretty much robbing towns. Um, so he goes and, uh, you know, he, he captures an outlaw, Tuca, um, the ugly and uh, collects the reward, but decides to rescue him at the last minute and go collect his reward in another town where he's wanted. Which is a pretty brilliant idea. You know, it's definitely an age where you know it's, it takes a lot longer for word to get around that but, but he's doing this. Um, and uh, eventually the two kind of uh, have a love-hate relationship with each other. Um, and you have, well, at the same time you also have the character, uh, the bad, uh, Angel Eyes. Who, yeah. um, Lee Van them, Cleef. Yeah, yeah, just a uh, great character, just wonderful, badass, just horrible, horrible man. <laughs> yeah. Um So eventually, the it comes down to a, a race for a cash box that has gold that was uh, Confederate gold being transported, um, and I think they say it's about uh, I think they said two hundred thousand dollars, which would be roughly three million today, and so obviously. Uh, definitely something worth going after um, yeah I think not the, a bad chunk of change there the, eh? the three main characters um, easily could all be classified as, as anti Um, you know uh, Tuco is pretty much a thieving murdering bandit but he does still value friendship and, and he has a complicated relationship with his brother um, who's a priest and the more you get a, a glimpse into his life it's not that he's a bad person it's just that he's fallen on, on hard times and chosen uh, made, made some poor choices Um, whereas, uh, Angel Eyes is a a bounty hunter, and, uh, we find out later, a sergeant in the Union Army, and yet he does have a code of completing a job that he's paid for. Um, so he he, he does have a, I'm not, I'm not going to say he's a hero, but he he definitely has his own strict moral code, which is admittedly pretty lax, but the things he believes in, he believes in strongly. Um... Uh, and then Blondie, of course, will obviously do the right thing when it comes down to it, if it makes sense for him and if it's, if it's the, the right thing to do for him. Um, you know, the film kind of takes its time in letting you decide whether you're supposed to like Cleaning Split or not. You know, It might show him in a, a scene with a kitten in his hat, or then in another scene, beating up a doctor and a soldier and stealing their clothes, dumping an injured soldier in need of medicine on the ground. So, you know, it's definitely something you... You look yeah. at and you're like, oh, you're a good guy. No, you're not a good guy. I don't know how to feel about you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, eventually uh, there's a great scene where the, um, Blondie and Tuco are going to, to blow up a bridge and, you know, you have the question of, is this act of destruction ultimately saving lives and, you know, is the, the selfish motive of wanting to get the gold on the other side of the bridge uh, is that what's more important or is it, you know, saving the lives and Men fighting in the Civil War, Um, Mm. so it's definitely a film that makes you question uh, the the main character's motives. You know, it's it's one that the it's set in clearly the lawless old west, but um, Clint Eastwood's Brand of Justice is probably as close to good as good as it gets. We like
0: these heroes that that they're Mm. a little bit rough around the edges. I mean, there's a reason why you know Wolverine is the iconic hero of x-men and nobody really cares about Cyclops there's a reason why everybody wanted Batman to beat Superman you know we like I, th- I think we like our char- our heroes to to be certainly flawed but you know just maybe not the not the clean-cut goody two shoes you know we like them to be a bit of a badass
1: yeah you know it's it's uh, I think it's just portraying a character who is um, maybe more complicated than you know a uh, a two-dimensional character and, and mm. it's easy to write a two-dimensional character and it's a lot harder to write a character who, who you have significant doubts about and who really makes you you think and, and, and feel a certain way um, so I think um, you know Clint Eastwood obviously does a brilliant job with his, uh, you know, his kind of funny brooding uh, scariness I guess you know he's a very intimidating yet kind of approachable person in this film and um, it, it just sort of works when he does Absolutely.
0: it. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. But I thought, you know, I, I mean, I looked at this film as well, obviously, but I thought there was probably only room for one Clint Eastwood Western on my, my top five anti-hero lists. So I, I didn't want to be too indulgent in that respect. But it's <laughs> yeah. a great pick. It's, a, you know, one of my all-time favorites, and it's a terrific pick, unquestionably.
2: I've been looking for you for eight months whenever i should have had a gun in my right hand i thought of you now i find you in exactly the position that suits me i had lots of time to learn how to shoot with my left (laughs) when you
0: have to shoot shoot don't talk and uh, moving swiftly on my my number 2 film is like the good and the bad the ugly really in no way at all actually i don't there's no way that i'm going to try and make any links between it but mine mine goes back to 2014 where in a uh, a, a youtube youtube video review that i did for this film i was so pompous enough to call it a modern masterpiece which is a, a phrase that I, when i got into the the film criticism game i swore i would never use in any context but this film really really got to me it was 2014 completely snubbed at the oscars the next year uh, starring jake gyllenhaal uh, i'm talking nightcrawler did you see this one, Dan?
1: No, you know I, I, I had meant to, and um, it's one of those that I, I really wish I could have seen uh, in theater. So I, not one I've seen yet, but definitely one I, I wanted to see.
0: It's on Netflix, man. You need to get it watched, and uh, it it's, it's absolutely remarkable of a film. Uh, when when we're looking at antiheroes, um, I, what I like to do what I like to do in a lot of these films is kind of look at the first shots that we see them in. And what are they doing? And what that tells us about the characters, you know. And our anti-hero here, uh, Hall's Lou Bloom, he probably isn't the worst offender. Uh, he, I, I don't think he can quite compete with uh, with Joseph and Tyrannosaur of kicking a dog to death in the first time we see him. But in this scene, he is snipping a chainmail fence and entering into private property. So you you know he's someone who's not to be trusted. Shortly after that, you see him beat up a security guard and steal his watch, and this kind of confirms your suspicions that this, this isn't a, a good guy, and although this isn't the worst act that we that I've, that I've seen an anti-hero do in, in the films that I've talked about, I think what's interesting about the character of Lou Bloom, uh, re-watching it, certainly when I saw it the first time, and re-watching it kind of confirmed it, this is probably the only character, the only anti-hero on my list that has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. He is on my list purely because he is our protagonist. He is in pretty much every scene of the movie. He is the guy that we follow around. But he is uh, an anti-hero only in the sense that he is our protagonist. There is really no arc. Well, there is a bit of an arc on him, but it's in the wrong direction. There are no heroic revelations from the character of Lou Bloom. Hall is remarkable in this film i mean I, I i i i'm on the fence a little bit with Jalen and hall a lot of his work you know for every donnie darko that he does he'll do something maybe like the prince of persia the sands mm. of time but then you'll see him in something like source code and 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 realize that he you know there is a bit he's a bit more of a thinking man's pretty boy actor he's kind of in that ryan gosling camp i suppose and here you know, he does everything he can to kind of shed that that pretty boy reputation. He's got this slick back, greasy hair like he hasn't had a shower in days. He's got these bug eyes that are constantly staring, constantly taking things in. Uh, and, you know, I I don't think he blinks once in this film. I, like, I went back to try and count how many times he bl- you actually see him blink on camera, and it just doesn't seem to happen. Uh, he's very much a lost soul. In Los Angeles, looking for his calling. You know, at the beginning, he's kind of selling scrap metal. He's stealing scrap metal from 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 yards and trying to sell it. Uh, so he, he hasn't found his calling yet. Uh, he's he's looking for his thing. He's a he's ruthlessly ambitious. He is a fierce negotiator, and he's just looking for the for the right thing for him. and when he finds it, and he finds it quite early on in this film, heaven help us, he is a a bloody nightmare, I'll tell you. Because he's completely unconscionable. He is completely uncaring. He is completely lacking in any social skills, in any sort of, anything that is approaching human empathy. He is basically, like, it's a very, like, if, if there was, like... If this film had faded to black at the end and then faded back up after a couple of credits and it was revealed that he was actually a robot that was that they were testing to try and see if he could learn human <laughs> empathy, uh, I wouldn't have been too surprised. Um, and basically all of these things make him perfect for the world of freelance video journalism. Essentially an ER paparazzi uh, who, chase, who basically drives the streets at night looking for car crashes and drive-by shootings and burglaries and domestic beatings and, and sticking them on character uh, camera and selling them to local news networks that are just desperate for some sort of fear-mongering shock story to, to plaster on the morning news. Um, so he's perfect for that because he doesn't seem to possess a soul, and so he's perfect for you know the most soulless profession on the planet, basically.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah, I, I feel like Jake Gyllenhaal, that he's a, a perfect perfect actor for that, that sort of character. You know, he's someone who um, is very charming and can, and you know, make the audience want to watch him, but you, know, you flip a switch and he becomes a different person. And uh, it's it's really great to, I'm glad to hear that, uh, that you know, he obviously he was uh, praised for his performance. Um, and I, I believe He was
0: praised for it, but he was criminally, criminally overlooked at the Oscars. And I know the Oscars don't really matter in any sort no. of sense. Well, no, you know. I don't it, know. It, it's point. still... It still burns it still yeah. burns then all these years later <laughs> I said he was a shoo-in for the Oscars and it never he didn't even get a nomination but hmm. but watching him in here you know I, I, I was reminded watching it of, of uh, Robert De Niro and taxi driver there are hmm. elements of Travis Bickle about him you know this this completely disconnected human riding around that uh, dark streets at night observing the scum of the earth the scum of the night. But unlike you know Travis Bickle, unlike Travis Bickle who kind of gets his heroic moment, his bit at the end, there there is none of that for Ooh. for Lou Bloom. He doesn't have this this part where he saves the day. If anything, there's a bit where he just he gets even worse. He sinks even lower. So Ooh. he's a fascinating character. He is a very fascinating character. I mean, you can't take your eyes off him, and that is a skill in itself. Having somebody who is so detestable, you should. You should give up on this movie after ten minutes because you're not <laughs> interested. You hate the character, but you can't because you can't look away. You're basically like the audience watching the news for these car crashes because he is just so watchable. Um, so I mean, it's it's unbelievable that he that he was able to do this, playing basically a human parasite. But the film, aside from this great study of a, of, a, of a modern American antihero, is also just. A fantastic. I mean, the film as a whole is just a fantastic observe, observation piece for the state of um, of uh, the media, the, the the American media with their manipulation of these terrifying events and how Bloom can manipulate it and kind of exploit it and then even go to create his news. And uh, Rennie Russo, who who doesn't act enough these days, actually it has to be said. She's actually a very reliable hand. She she's really good as this. The station manager, who's effectively an enabler for for Bloom and his detestable techniques and practices, so a, a fantastic film, an absolutely brilliant film, an absolutely terrific performance. Yeah, can't say enough good things about it. But yeah, not a feel good film by any stretch.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think uh, I feel like uh, that's a theme maybe running along with the uh, the other other movies that we've chosen. I don't know if any of these are super feel good movies. You know, it's. <laughs> something that is uh, good to watch but yeah maybe not a not the happiest <laughs> film
0: no for sure absolutely not well maybe well maybe your number one can can save us from that and I'm dying well, to know what your number one is but before we get there do you have any that that didn't quite make the list but that you were really hoping to talk about
1: yeah you know there were again this is a really hard um, to, to cut this list down um, there were a lot of other characters I, I feel like uh, merited you know um, Top the anti-hero status. Um, so some of the other films I was considering: um, Sin City, specifically um, Mickey Rourke's character Marv; uh, Rebel Without a Cause; um, obviously James Dean is just like a force of nature in that film; um, mm. American Psycho; Ex Machina; oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The Dark Knight. And I, you know, the more I think about it, um, maybe <laughs> Alan Rickman's scenes in Harry Potter, because Snape is a Pretty, um, almost definitely a, a, one of the best anti-heroes. Maybe it's better true. portrayed in, in the films. So um, not that Alan Rickman didn't do a phenomenal job. I just, you know, I wish they had focused a little more on that. Um, so before I get to my number nine, my, my number one, I'm gonna list my top five. I've got at number five The Crow, number four A Clockwork Orange, number three Drive number two, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and my number one antihero film, maybe the best film of all time, and I, I say that, uh, and I will fight to the death, um, and no, it is not uh, Citizen Kane, it is the 1942 classic, Casablanca. Oh, alright, yeah, 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 you went there. Um, <laughs>
2: Um, I'm alright with
0: that I'm absolutely okay with that that's certainly in my top three movies of all time you're gonna get very little argument from me
1: yeah, you know, it's it's one that this this film is a category it, it can fit into so many categories and um, it's just it truly is classic Hollywood directed by Michael Curtis uh, and just starring uh, Humphrey Bogart at his best um, as well as uh, Ingrid Bergman and uh, Claude Rains. so, Rick Blaine in Morocco, in Casablanca, Morocco, has set up shop and is running a very successful cafe. Um, he's a very complicated and really deeply unhappy man. Uh, however, in his misery, he's still the kind of person who somehow seems to inspire happiness in others. So his bar uh, is essentially the place to be uh, while World War II is happening around them in Northern Africa. And you have um, all sorts of uh, different characters and, and uh, different forces at work. You have uh, the Nazi, uh, basically, uh, you know, high command uh, meeting with uh, the French meeting with uh, you know some freedom fighters and it, it is just I, really this I could I could talk forever about this film. It's one that you know it has everything you could want. It's got romance. It's got action. It has a, such an amazing script. It's incredibly funny and very moving. Um, and Rick is just. Uh, such a, a, person you, you watch and he's such a son of a bitch, you know, he's a very, very unhappy person, um, you know, someone who everything he says and does, he, he seems to, to exude this sense of, you know, get away, get out of, get, you know, get out of get out of my face with your problems, you know, I don't stick my neck out for nobody, and yet, <laughs> with a heart of gold, um, you know, someone who, it's a, definitely a, a man who's very conflicted, He was unable to return to America due to his mysterious past, and, um, you know, it just turns out he really just has a bad case of a broken heart, Um, you know, (laughs) right to the very end he places cards really close to his chest, um, but eventually he does reveal his inner romantic, um, and, you know, I don't, I'm I'm sure this is a film that most people have either seen and, and or not. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like in terms of spoilers here, it was 1942. So I don't want to. <laughs> for for those who still haven't seen it, you know, you need to see it. So I, well, I, won't, I won't, yeah, and you won't know what, Dan, much. I
0: want to speak to that. If 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 you're listening to this podcast and you haven't watched Casablanca, just just turn it off. Just skip us. And I know we're <laughs> desperate for people to listen, but if you haven't seen Casablanca, what are you doing listening I mean, to this when yeah. <laughs> when you haven't ticked that off your list and you're you're spending your time listening to this. Oh. For shame, for shame.
1: <laughs> yeah, just, uh, it's such a well-made movie, and, you know, it's one that, thankfully, hasn't really been, um, remade. I, I know they, I think there was, um, they tried to do a Casablanca 2 or something. I don't think... Oh, well, I think
0: they did a, they even explored and maybe made a couple of episodes of a TV show.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Which, I can see why they'd want to. It, the Just the bar alone has so many different characters and, and so much mm-hmm. wonderful stuff happening. You know, it's, it's rife for... For a, kind of a, almost a Cheers esque um, World War Two you know kind of kind of show, but
0: yeah, afternoon everybody, rigs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know it's just it's one that I think ultimately it benefits from, like I was saying earlier, having a story, telling that story, and then you know finishing the story. Um, mm. It it has such a, a wonderfully strong beginning, middle, and end. Um, and I you know it's it's something that it's the kind of film you look at and you know there's a reason why it's i think afi had i think something like five or six of its of its you know top 100 quotes from casablanca alone um it's one that's it's got such a great script and you you watch films from you know the 30s or 40s and some of them you know the dialogue is it can be very foreign to, to the way we we talk now, certainly, mm. but this is one where the the comedy is just—it's just as sharp as it as it was back in the day, <laughs> in 1942. Um, I mean, one of
0: my favorite parts of that film, and any film, is is, is near the end when Claude Rains is shutting down the bar. And Rick's like, what are you doing? Why are you shutting down my bar? And he just goes, I was shocked, shocked to learn that there's gambling going on in these premises. And then there's just a beat and a waiter comes up to him and goes, here's your winning, sir. And he goes, oh, thank you very much. And he pockets them and continues about his business. I mean, that is just, ugh, it doesn't get any better yeah, than that. You know, man.
1: I'm I, again, a uh, little ask Oscar outrage. He, he really should have won um, best supporting actor for his role. 80
0: years later. And I'm still furious.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just a uh, just one of my favorite or, or perhaps my favorite film of all time it's it's arguable it's arguable it's up there but um you yeah, Rick Blaine is you know he's such a a guy who you know he commands respect and he he's not he's not a very friendly person and you know um eventually you, you see in the film um Uh, Another character, Laszlo, um, comes in, and he clearly is the hero of the film, and yet you still want to root for Rick more than than Laszlo. Yeah. So, uh, definitely, uh, I'd say, top contender for anti hero. You
0: will have no arguments from me, uh, absent from my list. Purely because I kind of like to set myself the the rule that if, if something makes my list on a previous list, I try and leave it off any other list despite the fact that That's a fair you know, rule. That's a good, that's a good yeah. Rule. You know, just in the interest of the people listening, I mean, it would just be week after week of me shoehorning in Casablanca. <laughs> Anyone that listened to our top five films with colors in the title will know that I shamelessly shoehorned Casablanca into that one because uh because of Spanish for white or whatever it was it was well it's Nick a film was not that happy I think with me that week
1: you can forgive shameless shoehorning because it's that good
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i I should just start a weekly Casablanca cast <laughs> but uh but here we are anyway, well, fantastic list, and topped off with an absolutely undisputed marvelous number one, so tip of the hat to you there, Dan. Before I get to my number one, there were a bunch of films that that didn't quite make the cut that I would have loved to have put in there. Um, I was looking at things... I looked at Drive, certainly. I looked at something like The Assassination of Jesse James by the yeah. coward Robert Ford, yeah. which, you know, it was a, a toss-up at the end of the day whether that or Unforgiven would go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at a, a an English film by Mike Lee uh, starring David Thewlis called Naked, which was kind of... It was a toss-up between that and Tyrannosaur of looking at these really unlikable characters. And at the end of the day, I mean, as good as that film is... Um, I just thought that the David Thewlis character was maybe a little bit too repugnant to to sit and chat about. It didn't quite have the redemptive story of uh, Joseph in in uh, Tyrannosaur. Uh, I looked at things like Falling Down with Michael Douglas, a man pushed to just pushed too far, a normal guy, a normal working guy pushed too far and goes on a bit of a rampage things like from dusk till dawn with george clooney yeah. uh, there will be blood i would have loved to have talked about but i feel like you know this podcast has spent many many an hour <laughs> talking about how great that film is so we don't really need any more hours so I settled for my number one, and I should say, just to recap, for my anti-hero top five, number number five, Leon, number four, Tyrannosaur, number three, Unforgiven, number two, Nightcrawler. Uh, So lots of films with just one word in the title, but not a pattern continued for my number one film, which was 1982's Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy. And it would have been so easy, Dan, for me to have gone with Taxi Driver. That is that's the anti-hero film, when you think of Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro and you think of anti-heroes, you think of Travis Bickle Mm
2: -hmm.
0: which is certainly a very fine film and a film that I've appreciated more and more in recent years and a terrific character and a terrific story and a terrific performance and wonderfully directed, but there's just something about the king of comedy that really, really speaks to me maybe because it's kind of it's kind of, uh, well certainly at the time it was Scorsese's kind of wobble i suppose is his kind of show that he wasn't as untouchable you know it was a, the re-teaming of that very successful pairing of him and of scorsese and de niro that was so popular in taxi driver and so successful in raging bull and then it came along and we had this this film with a 20 million dollar budget and it grossed i think 2.5 million dollars return so a, a big big failure for them mm-hmm. at the end of the day and i think it was i don't think it was very well received and certainly when you think of, of, of Robert De Niro, you don't necessarily think of comedy. And although he is playing the character hilariously named Rupert Pupkin, and he is effectively playing a stand-up comedian and wannabe ta- talk show host, there's nothing particularly funny about his character. Um, he, he plays a goofy and delusional, yet seemingly well-meaning and apparently harmless uh, man in his 30s who's obsessed with things, he, he has an obsession, he's like Lou Bloom, he basically has an obsession, he has an obsession with this idea of fame, this idea of celebrity, he has an obsession with this talk show host, Jerry Langford, played by Jerry Lewis, and he basically wants to be him, he wants to be in his position, and a lot of the film kind of plays out in his own mind. You see him having, a, seemingly having conversations with uh, with Jerry Langford, who's in his mind as one of his peers and one of his good friends and also with uh, potential romantic interests and you sort of see the conversations play out in his head and then you sort of see them play out in reality and you you know it's 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 something that Scorsese he doesn't he doesn't overplay that it's it, it it's kind of seamless the way that it jumps back and forth between being in his mind and being in reality and it's done very very well
2: Burt Reynolds. Mel Brooks. He's what you call on funny. Others are just regular. Oh, that's Sid Caesar. He's remarkable. I really like him. He's great. Woody Allen. He's a very nice guy. He's a personal friend of mine. Of course he is. (laughs) No, he is. Oh, that's Ernie Kovacs. He was wonderful. He was a great comedian, great innovator. That was a great, great loss. Oh, well, I bet some of these are worth money. Oh, yeah. Especially this one. Just hold it. Mm. What's this? We'll just take a guess. God, it looks like a retard. <laughs> <laughs> the more scribbled the name, the bigger the fame. That may be true, Rupert, but who is it? R is the first letter. Come on, Rupert, who is it? I'm tired. Well, I'll give you a little hint. Uh, Robert Redford. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, no. That's Rupert Pupkin. Rupert Pupkin. I surprised you, didn't I? Take this as a gift. Take good care of that. In a few weeks, everyone is going to want them. Rupert, you have not changed. Just a couple of hours ago, do you know who I was talking to? Guess. Your shrink? <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. No, Jerry Langford. That's right, the Jerry Langford.
0: And and I feel like Rupert Pupkin is, is a classic anti-hero in the same way that Travis Bickle was and in the same way Jake LaMotta was in Raging Bull, but rather than having this anger or having this kind of very bleak outlook on life. He kind of has this just complete delusion that provokes a very different reaction than those other two characters. Those other two characters kind of provoke a fear, kind of provoke a uh like a you know a, a, dis- a disconnect through their like physical presence. Whereas he's very unassuming and and it creates this kind of feeling of sympathy matched with just infuriation. You just kinda wanna grab the guy and give him a shake. Uh he tries so hard. He's so he's so like unbelievably detached from reality, that you kind of just want him to succeed because he wants it so bad, and yet you see him repeatedly shoot himself in the foot, and you just want to give him a smack. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Um, Like, in in his first interactions, he kind of weasels his way into the car with Jerry Langford, and he's kind of pitching himself. And it goes quite well. He manages to, like, he he gets Langford to agree to kind of listen to his set and give him thoughts, so... And and he's kind of got what he's wanted from it, and then there's... At the end of the interaction, Jerry Langford's trying to walk away and he just keeps on calling him back and he makes bad jokes and he keeps inviting him for dinner and it just and you're just all oh, the whole time you're just like, quit while you're ahead, and then you're like, Well, quit while you're back where you started from and then you're just like, Well, it's too late now. you should have quit fifteen minutes ago. So he's he's a fascinating character in that respect, and I think it it offers something very different from Uh, From those other characters that he was so famous for playing with Scorsese, Uh, and and I honestly believe that De Niro, although someone not known for his comedy, no one else could have played this role because it's it's kind of manic. It's very different for De Niro, but underneath all of his kind of pleasantries and his cracked smiles and his fake laughs, there's something. There's still something behind the eyes where you're like he could snap at any second and it makes him very very watchable and then you know you see where the film goes and 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 obviously he he goes from you know maybe this lovable underdog that you're sort of rooting for but also kind of want to give a smack to to someone who who you know crosses the other side crosses the crosses the line as it were uh and, it, and it's very it's fascinating it's fascinating and i and, I, and it's interesting you know time is Time has really told on this one. You know, this was a massive financial bomb. This was a film that uh, I think, now, uh, don't hold me to this, but may I, I think it was panned when it was first released, but now it is very well received and very highly regarded, if by no one else than myself. And surely, surely the praise of, of the Hi Hat Film podcast is at least enough for, for De Niro and Scorsese.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, De Niro, it just, you know, he's. Definitely, as you said, a very, very watchable uh, person. You know, he has such. um, You know, you you really, you look at him and you see someone, and you can tell that just their their inner life, their their inner mind is. You might not have to say a a thing, but he is just. uh, I, I can understand why. You know, uh, he, he, in his performance, he is more manic. Um, You know, he's just got such raw talent, and um, yeah. So I think that. (laughs) Uh, really, you could have said this. You could have said taxi driver, but I'm I'm, I'm glad you went with this. You know, it's um, yeah, maybe a, a lesser known film, um, but you know, you get Scorsese and De Niro together, you you really can't lose. Yeah, it's
0: it's some sort of magic. It's some kind of magic. And Scorsese, you know, he's he's done some good stuff with DiCaprio since then, but yeah, I don't think we're ever going to see anything quite as quite as special as this run of films that he did with De Niro.
2: Hmm. Now. A lot of you are probably wondering why Jerry isn't with us tonight. Well, I'll tell you, the fact is he's tied up, and I'm the one who tied him. <laughs> well, I, I know you think I'm joking, but believe me, that's the only way I could break into show business, <laughs> by hijacking Jerry Langford. Right now, Jerry is strapped to a chair somewhere in the middle of the city. <laughs> Go ahead and laugh. Thank you. I appreciate it. But the fact is, I'm here. Now, tomorrow you'll know that I wasn't kidding and you'll think I was crazy. But look, I figure it this way. Better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. <laughs>
0: Whew. Well, uh, I, I, I don't know. I've, I'm left a, a little bit out of breath and a little bit sweaty from all of that, Dan. I don't know about you. we we. we we were both really, really excited for this, and we we kind of delayed getting the recording done because we wanted to make sure that we we got our research done, we got our notes on point, and um, you know I well time will tell on on if my ramblings come out as coherent. But I'd say I'd say certainly you've you've done a marvelous job of putting together a terrific list. Oh, thank Absolutely, you. As, as you've, you've,
1: you you've, yeah, you know. Oh well, thanks. But I think I think all these films um, they do have a slightly darker theme to them, maybe a darker edge, but. You know they're so complex and, and so uh, fun to watch that you know I think um, the genre of of antihero films is definitely something that, that uh, a lot of people are very interested in. Mm-hmm.
0: And we've never we've never done a repeat of our top fives before, but I would say if we were to ever to go back and, and maybe throw together another, maybe like an, a, an additional Just
1: uh, top now. three
0: of these, yeah, I think I think it's a list that we could definitely draw from again, because it's fascinating, and you know, if we've, we've certainly seen that uh, there's, a, an anti-hero comes in many shapes and sizes, you know, you, you have your Deadpools, and you have your your Batmans, but then you also have your, your Josephs and Tyrannosaur, and the, and the Crow, and, and all of them, so uh, one that we can perhaps return to again.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
0: Well... I think we'll, we'll draw a line under it there, Dan, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, a reminder that all of our back episodes are available on iTunes, and you can also check us out on SoundCloud. We put up our most regular episodes. We've got a couple of our DVD marathon episodes over on SoundCloud as well. If you want to listen to our six rounds of Rocky, or the day when I sat down and watched all of the Godfather films back-to-back, they're all there on SoundCloud. You can also join in the fun and games over on our Facebook page, Page. and be sure to give the show a follow on Twitter at highhat pods you can also follow myself at Clancy high hat dan you 're on twitter aren 't you
1: oh I certainly am yes uh, you can find me at uh, Dan lovely
0: oh nice and easy just add me yeah that. nice and simple. <laughs> Well, look, Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I think we'll we'll sit down again in about a month's time with another top five, and you know, based on this one, I'm I'm very, very much looking forward to it. I think I think we'll let you pick that the one. next theme, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll probably announce on our Facebook page in the maybe a week or so after we've this episode comes out on what we're going to be covering. But I'm I'm certainly looking forward to it. As am I well look last month you kind of put me to shame with your sign off you had a a, <laughs> a, a nice little sign off point so I've, I've tried to raise my game so I went back to the, one of my favorite episodes of the Simpsons so I will end with good night and keep watching the skis hey, give me my 20,000 can?
2: OG? Benny? Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone! Everyone!